This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. So let's move along here this morning. And uh, we have been, we were looking at last week at Psalm 51. And um, we want to have a look at a, at a corresponding psalm, which is Psalm 32. And uh, in Psalm 51, David makes confession, and I was just reading from that. And in Psalm 32, he writes a song of the blessedness of forgiveness. And it's a, it's a powerful song. And, of course, I mentioned last week that the background of these um, psalms is to go back to uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and read the background story. Uh, David lusted after his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery. He made her husband get drunk and then he had him killed and then he covered the whole affair for at least a year. Um, and David was a mature man when this occurred. So sometimes we think that sins of lust are the are just the folly of youth um, and we relegate, the, relegate it to that. Um, I, so that is, that, that is specifically wrong. Um, and so sins, the sins of lust are not confined to the young, not in any way. But they are often committed by people who have an overconfidence in self, um, and that is, that is something we, we, um, uh, we must face. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so, you know, there is this tendency within mankind that uh, we get a confidence within ourselves and, and as a um, uh, consequence of that self-confidence, um, we uh, begin standing in our own strength and standing in our own power. And then uh, suddenly we, we fall and uh, we fall in sin. And, you know, that's, that's a reality of life and many of us have experienced that or we've seen it in others even uh, that have been saved for a long time um, and something has gone out of kilter in their relationship with God and they're relying upon their own strength uh, in that and as a result um, their pride steps in and before long they find themselves falling. So David's prayer of confession was Psalm 51 and we want to just read back through that. And then we'll go into Psalm 52, uh, Psalm 32. Be gracious to me, O God, according to you, uh, according to your um, loving kindness. Um, sorry, I've got it right here. I should have fixed that word up from last week. Yeah, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is not saying, why, Lord? Why me, Lord? You know, he's saying, I've sinned against you and you're completely justified in in the actions you determine. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. 
and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favour, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So let's go then to, uh, from David's confession in Psalm 51, let's go to Psalm 32 and see his praise of God. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a mascal. That now, I've inserted that because it's, it's simply the heading in the um, uh, study Bible, a masquil. Um, a masquil is a song that um, is a di didactic song in its purpose. Now, didactic means that it has a teaching element. It meant the song was for teaching. And... Um, you know, this is a um, standard way of learning things that, that many people have employed. Um, the ABC song is, is a didactic song. It has a teaching purpose. Its purpose is to teach children um, the ABCs. I won't sing it to you. Um, it's enough that you have to listen to me talking without that. But it means that the purpose of this song is that it has a teaching element to it. And so David, as he writes this song of praise, there is an intention within this song that he would teach others about uh, what he has been through and where God has brought him to. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away though my groaning, uh, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Now, the phrase Selah um, doesn't have a, uh, to my knowledge, doesn't have a specific um, translatable meaning other than in, in music you might see a term such as rest, um, which is a, a pause within, uh, uh, within music. And obviously 
in music that has some syncopation, that pause is going to be for a deliberated set uh, period of time. Now, not so much in this, but there's a pause, and and the the reason that Selah is inserted into the Psalms very often is that it's a pause for reflective meditation, reflective meditation. And so this phrase, Selah, ties in to verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Now pause and meditate on this. That's the intention that you and I would learn uh, this didactic song, this song for teaching, and we would then, as we reflect on it and, and read it over, we would take time to pause and meditate over these verses attached to this time pause for us. Let's keep going because we'll come back to that idea a little later. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah, pause and reflect on this. So the intention of this song is that we would work our way through this song and we would take time to reflect upon our own state before God. This is the intention of it. Verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah, pause and reflect on this as well. So David is writing here and he has these different stages within this psalm and at these different stages of a person's walk, he's saying pause and reflect on this. Do some internal meditation on this. Uh, we're not talking in the Eastern sense, we're talking on the biblical sense, which is to take this passage of verse in and, and ponder it around within the mind and within the heart, uh, letting this passage work its way deep within us. And, you know, there's an injunction that we see immediately as soon as we start meditating over this passage in verse 6. Uh, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. There's an injunction there. We'll come to a little later. Let's move on to the remaining verses of the psalm. I will instruct you. And so this is the Lord's reply to David here. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include a bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. I can't hear you. Um, shout for joy. You know, most of us treat church like it's a, a library 
And uh, when you read through the Psalms and through the Scripture, God's not afraid or ashamed of noise. He's not ashamed of the, um, uh, you know, the the genuine expression of the human heart in both sorrow and in joy, in brokenness and in wholeness. Um, he's not ashamed of these things. And so the Lord is is telling David. This is the Lord telling David, "Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you." who are upright in heart. And so often, we, especially within the Western mindset, we, we become so closeted in our emotions, uh, even the, the ones that we share with one another, that we can also let that affect our walk with God and, um, and we can be closeted in that way as well. So just thinking back to the previous week, um, two weeks ago, uh, the week before Selby's message, this wonderful message. I'd encourage you to go back over that. Um, we looked at the cost of committing sin, so the cost of commission. We looked at the cost of confession, that when you and I, there, there is going to be a brokenness that comes with confessing of sin, a, a genuine brokenness that will accompany the confession of sin, the cost of cleansing, that God... Um, that good works and religious performances cannot cleanse from sin. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse from sin. This is the high cost of you and I being cleansed from our sin. And uh, that high cost of cleansing from sin ought to make us hate sin and turn from it, to run from it. But there is another side to this story. So that's what we looked at the previous week, uh, but the other side is the experience of the joy of forgiveness that is expressed in Psalm 32. Um, in fact, Paul quotes David's psalm in Romans chapter 4, the first two verses of it. So Romans chapter 4. Now, I have uh, taken this out of the New American Standard, which places the verses in uh, caps, um, and when you're reading through the New Testament in the New American Standard, whenever you see a text in uh, capitalised letters, uh, what what that means is it's a reference that is taken from the Old Testament. Well, we've been reading um, uh, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, and here Paul, uh, from his knowledge and experience of Psalm 32, he takes that passage and he quotes it. So he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, you can look up that passage uh, in commentaries and you will see that quite a few commentaries take that passage and give a little summary of it. Um, Kenneth Wurst in his expanded translation, he translates the words blessed, which essentially have the meaning of to be happy. But it's a little bit like the word repentance in metanoia, a change of mind. Now, a change of mind does not encompass, in the Greek, it doesn't encompass the Hebrew uh, intentions of the word uh, repentance, which carries with it a component of deep sorrow that leads to a change of mind. 
And uh, so in the same way, the word blessed doesn't simply mean happy as if some circumstances have occurred and so therefore we are um, uh, for some reason happy. The, the word carries with it a meaning of spiritual prosperity, that there is a prospering within the, within the individual because of some circumstances. So blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So spiritually prosperous are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. So Kenneth Woost, uh, Woost or Weist, I don't know, uh, W-U-E-S-T, he translates this as spiritually prosperous are those whose lawlessnesses, that's a hard word to say because it's the plural of lawlessness, whose lawlessnesses were put away and whose sins were covered. Spiritually prosperous is the man to whose account the Lord does not in any case put sin. Wow, what a, uh, an amazing statement. And the reason it's amazing is because David was entirely guilty. He had committed horrible sin. Now, hand on heart, that's you and I as well. We have committed horrible sins, you and I. He had rebelled against the law of God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. David had rebelled against the law of God. These were lawless deeds. He had failed to meet God's righteous standard. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. The, the term for sin means a falling short of the standard or the glory of God. And so David, he had fallen short. He failed to meet God, God's righteous standard in keeping the law. And so as a consequence of that, um, he had sinned. And here, uh, as, as David said in the, in the beginning of uh, Psalm 32, and then as Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, his falling short, his failure was covered by God. So he had failed to meet God's righteous standard. He had surrendered to his sinful passions. Uh, in this, and had deceitfully covered up the whole matter for a year. And um, this is a, a great uh, tragedy. You could take Proverbs 28. Uh, I'll just go over there, Proverbs 28. Um, and verse 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Proverbs 28, verse 13. What an awesome correlation to uh, this text that we're looking at here this morning, Psalm 32. Let's move on. Let's just consider as we... Um, a reading Psalm 32, that there is a um, an effect upon us when when we cover up sin. There is a, a powerful effect. So we could call that the the ravaging 
effect of sin. Sin uh, is damaging enough to us, but when we continue to keep it covered, it is powerful in its effects within the individual. And David refused to confess his sin, and there was an effect directly in his life. He suffered within his life. Psalm uh, 51 shows us that David suffered spiritually through his silence. And in Psalm 32, it shows us that he also suffered physically through his silence. Verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He, he is talking, David is talking about some of the effects of, uh, of the silence about his sin, um, that they had a devastating effect within him as an individual. He became, you know, like an old man. He's, he says God's hand was heavy upon him and um, he was uh, like someone, you know, that, uh, that was struggling through the, the feverish, uh, feverish heat of summer and, um, uh, you know, that he was experiencing that drought spiritually and physically within his life. Some people um, uh, who go to a doctor to take care of their symptoms, as some believers this is, should go to the Lord and search their hearts. Now, I'm not saying don't go to a doctor. This is not some word of faith garbage here. Um, but what I'm saying is you and I may suffer. Uh, we may suffer within through the silence or, or the compression, if you like, the, the covering of our own personal sins, and it can affect us within. Now, so it, it does mean that, um, you know, we're, we're not, I'm not saying that all sickness is caused by sin, but it does mean that unconfessed sin uh, can have a physical affliction. That's something for us to consider. Isn't that the emphasis of 1 Corinthians 11 when the Lord, uh, um, well, when Paul talks to the church about uh, the Lord's Supper? And in verses uh, 29 to 31, but starting with verse 28, uh, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, uh, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number are asleep or dead, that means. Um, but if and, and so Paul is talking about believers who um, have died as a consequence of uh, them not judging their own actions and the motivations of their actions and they, they harboured uh, wrongfulness and in the process of that, uh, God took them out. That's, that's what it seems to say. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, so for the believer who uh, is in error in his ways, uh, there is a need for us to pause and to uh, discontinue a process of covering up of sin 
so that we can rightly judge our hearts and come before God and be liberated from the effects of the covering up of sin. So God is at work in our lives, uh, and part of his work is to bring us to true repentance and, uh, and in the process of doing that, bringing us to true repentance, God brings us to a place where we are restored in fellowship with him. And, you know, it seems to me in 1 Corinthians 11, these are people that Paul is speaking of who are out of fellowship with God but were not under the judgment as sinners. Uh, but God judged, God judged their sin, uh, but he, he spared them from ultimate uh, judgment as uh, sinners will face. Now, that's a topic for another day. However, just take note of that, that there is a ravaging effect spiritually and even physically upon us as believers when we are silent about our sin. Let's move on from that. Now, there is also within this passage a wonderful rawness of true confession. I think this is one of the most endearing aspects of David when you read him. He, he wears his heart out on his sleeve, as we, uh, uh, you know, as we are often recorded to say about individuals. David pours himself out, and this is something uh, raw. There is something basic. There's something powerful about the confession of sin. David said in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so we'll take a moment to pause. You forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. So we'll take a moment to pause and think about this. Literally, David is saying, I began to make known to you my sin. Now, the wording is interesting. I acknowledge my sin to you. Um, the wording is interesting because he, he's, uh, he's actually saying I began to make it known. Um, and the idea is that it wasn't an immediately completed fact. It wasn't the simplicity of a prayer such as, oh, Lord, I've sinned. That's, please forgive me. Please forgive me, Lord. That's not what David was doing here. But the indication of the text is that David was working this issue through with God. He, he began pleading with God over the state of his heart and over the condition of sin that he was in. David immediately confessed that he had sinned when Nathan spoke to him. But then privately, David allows the Spirit of God to uncover his sins one by one. And this is the true nature of confession. You know, imagine a, um, a man who, who maybe has been dishonorable to his family in, in various different ways, um, and so then he realises that, that he's uh, being dishonorable in all these different ways, and so he gathers the family and he says, 
to them, look, I've got something to say to you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Now, there would be a lot of confusion in that in, in, in the sense that the family members who maybe are anticipating this and, and wanting to see the restoration of relationship between themselves and their father are probably hungering for an, a, a depth of communion and confession to take place. And, uh, and so if a father was just to simply say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, um, that's not going to cut the mustard as far as the family's concerned. They're, what are you sorry about? It's going to be one of the first questions because how can we forgive you if we don't know what you're sorry about? And so it, it works the same way that, that as believers, God is desiring truth in the inward parts. He's desiring that you and I would come before him to be cleansed. And that's going to require that you and I are honest with God in seeking that forgiveness and in confessing our sins and actually speaking them out to God and not just uh, saying, sorry, God, please forgive me, um, because that, do, that doesn't cut it. You know, that's not, the, that's not a, a um, raw, sincere, true confession uh, before the Lord. David's prayer was not a, you know, this general confession. His, he, he named his sins specifically before God, and because he confessed, God forgave him. One writer said, um, the less you spare yourself, the more God will spare you. The less you spare yourself. That, that's a phrase we would be familiar with because we would have heard sometimes people say, I'll spare you the embarrassment. The less you spare yourself, the more God will spare you. The less you and I cover, the more God will spare you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. We, we just read that out a moment ago in, um, in 1 Corinthians 11. For if we judged ourselves, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Now, God, how do we, how do we say this? Um, there, there is an emotional component to seeking forgiveness because the idea of forgiveness, seeking forgiveness, stems from the understanding of law-breaking. And just as every parent would desire for their children to come to them and, and confess to them, say, Mom, Dad, I did this thing wrong and I'm so sorry, and be genuine about it, the idea of confession is that it comes from a brokenness of heart. Um, we, we read that just a moment ago. In Psalm 51, um, when we were going into communion, um, 
For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And so God doesn't forgive simply because we confess. There is an element to true confession that is accompanied by true brokenness. And that then causes in us a rawness to uh, the sincerity of a true confession. And you, if you've been a believer for, for any length of time, you've met someone who has just outwardly poured out their heart about how they had disgraced God and it's just gushed out of them. And, and you know, you're listening to them uh, as they share with you the brokenness that they had in their lives and how they experienced God's love and joy. And even in telling you many times that you, you're able to um, sense a reflection from this person's heart in your own life as to the, the total sincerity with which they're speaking to you about how they poured their heart out to God. And um, God doesn't simply forgive just because of prayer. It's not just that we recite our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He forgives when we confess our sins because he's faithful and just and because we are in a place of sincerity about recognising the condition of our sins and and how we have violated God's law and, and, uh, and violated our relationship with him. He's faithful to his promise and, um, uh, and he is just concerning his reference to the cross. You see, forgiveness is found at the cross of Jesus Christ and therefore we don't earn forgiveness. The, the coming to God in, in a condition of uh, confession of sin is not to earn forgiveness. It's a simple step of obedience. You know, confess your sins. is is a step of obedience that we would honour God with that. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So if you and I have been justified by God through repentance and faith, then who can bring a charge against us? It's God who justified it. He's dealt with it. And how did he deal with it? In the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the justice of God. So it's in his hands. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us, uh, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written for your sake, uh, um, uh, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we are overwhelmed, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.
God's love is not a random thing. It is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and we are in Christ Jesus through repentance and faith, and therefore the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through repentance and faith. So forgiveness is tied to confession of sin because God is faithful and just. That's a a phenomenal thought, isn't it? That God calls us to confess our sin to him because he is faithful and just to forgive. Now, let that just sink in for a moment. This is a Selah moment where you pause and reflect and you wonder for a moment, Lord, what sins have I committed? What sins are unconfessed between me and you? He's aware of them. In our calloused hearts, we may have become unaware of them. Not that they're not there, but that we have become so calloused that we're committing this sin uh, without even giving heed to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let's move on here this morning. So we've looked at the ravaging effect of silence, the raw sincerity of true confession. Let's have a look at the rejoicing of cleansing. David's brokenness and rawness of his confession was replaced by singing and rejoicing. God put songs in his heart, and I know that there are more than uh, one of you listening who have had that experience of of, uh, coming to Christ and experiencing the forgiveness of sins, and, uh, and there just seems to be this thing of rejoicing and singing within your heart. In verse verses 6 and 7, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. Uh, now, let's do a little translation of that. Surely in a flood of great waters, that flood of great waters will not reach him, is how I think it, it is. Uh, the disaster will not overcome him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me in trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Again, we come across this this pause for reflection. So he is surrounded by songs of deliverance, and wherever he turns, this means he's finding something to sing about. What a turnaround from Psalm 51, verse 3, where my sin was ever before me, he said. Now he's surrounded by songs of deliverance. You know, look what the Lord has done. Greater is he that is in me. You know, his heart is bursting forth with song. It's no longer I who liveth. You know, I'm obviously singing from the New Testament experience. Um, but David said, "My, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And now he's saying, uh, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. So there is a turnaround. Why? Because of the confession that he went through. Now, there's a warning here in this text. And verse 6 says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. So there's a warning here about timeliness. He warns us that, that uh, 
we should not delay in seeking God. Pray to you in a time when you may be found. Now, this may have two meanings. It may mean that in a time when we find out our sins, so as soon as we become aware of our sins, seek God. Um, And it may also mean uh, in a time when God may be found. And um, I think the the second meaning leans toward this idea that that the longer we harbour a sin in our hearts, the harder our hearts become and the more difficult it becomes becomes for us to open up before God because we've been harbouring this sin and our hearts have become uh, have become calloused. And so um, with that, uh, you know, uh, and I, I think there are some different interpretations, but I think there may be a combination of these two mixed together here that, that David says, remember he says in verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. So, so as overwhelming as the acknowledging of our sin before God may be, persist in seeking God with it while, you, while you're in that state of heart. Don't let it go. Now, I think it is genuine to the text to state that if a believer allows sin to accumulate allows sin we're talking about a believer here if they allow sin to go covered uh, so it's covered over and they're they're harboring it i think it's fair to say that hebrews 12 teaches us that god will chasten us and that chastening is for a specific purpose that in the process of God chasing us, we'll go to Hebrews 12, um, that in the process of God chasing us, he is uh, correcting us for a purpose. For you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and have you forgotten Uh, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. My son, do not despise. So God speaks to his, his children and the author of Hebrews reminds him that, listen, don't treat this lightly. Have, have you forgotten that God says he will chasten his children? For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So God has a purpose uh, in the discipline he brings into our lives, and it may be that... um, the chastening of the Lord might be likened to these waters that that will not overwhelm. Um, You know, surely in a great flood uh, or surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. So so God will use the circumstances of life. He will bring about circumstances in order to chasten us so that we will come to him uh, in reflection and in confession of our sins. So, you know, the, the... 
the caution for us is confess quickly. You know, don't delay with confessing. David, as a as a consequence of his confession, he's not afraid anymore. Um, we read in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 32, and I hope that you're still there, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. So there's a confidence there. Surely, he says, uh, he says, then you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. So his confidence is in God. He is, he's not, David is now not living in fear. He's not trembling. His bones are not quaking within him. His body is not wasting away. He's not feeling like somebody who is parched from the hot, dry summer sun. This is the blessing of being in right relationship with God, that out of that right relationship with God, fear is vanquished with the presence of a, a clean conscience. And that, that's something that money can't buy. The Beatles said money can't buy me love, but um, that is something money can't buy you. So that comes um, out of relationship with God. In, in a sense, David is saying, let troubles come. I'm not afraid. Whatever comes my way is only by the Lord's hand anyway. He's, he's allowed it to come. So he will give me strength to withstand even the most onerous assaults of the enemy, uh, David says they're not an issue. God will strengthen me to stand. So let's move on as we come to a close in this. So we've looked at the um, ravaging effect of silence. Um, I think I'm missing a little bit of a slide here. So. Um, um, it may pop up at the end here, so let me just go through this. I think I've got this out of order here. Yeah. So looking at the top three points there, and, and I'll, I'll just leave the slide open um, and you'll be able to see it. So the ravaging effect of silence, the raw sincerity of true confession, the rejoicing of cleansing. Let's have a look finally at the expression of joy and confidence uh, that. Um, comes because verses 8 to 11, this is God's reply to David. God is now speaking to David and he uh, uh, is assuring him that he will direct his steps. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He restores my soul. Uh, Psalm 23 verse 3 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice that God wants to counsel you with his eye. Now, this is far different to being corrected with a rod. In other words, the intention of God is that you and I would be in such a relationship with him that it's a little bit like a parent who may do this to their child and the child responds or the parent raises both eyebrows or frowns and, and the child instantly is aware or the parent sort of 
looks like this, as if the child is to divert their attention to something and, and then goes to do it. And so uh, God wants to guide us with his eye, not with a heavy rod. And an obedient child learns the look of his or her uh, parents' eyes. They, they learn to um, understand the direct, directive that parents are giving from a look or from a simple uh, phrase. And we should be seeking to be constantly under the Father's eye, uh, learning to live so we can please him. In verse 9, David talks about two extremes. And he says in verse 9, don't be as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Now, this is the Lord, remember, speaking to David here. And he's saying, don't be like this. Don't be like a horse and don't be like a mule. I've been around a lot of horses. They can be flighty. Don't be like that. Don't be impulsive. Don't be like a mule. And um, there's more than one or two, two mules in my family history. Um, the Irish, Scottish and English uh, are renowned for stubbornness. In fact, probably every culture is in some way. The horse that rushes ahead and the, the uh, mule that is stubborn, they're both led by the bit in the mouth that bit that is uncomfortable for them and so they, they learn that when they try to fight and they try to resist that bit that it's uncomfortable for them and so they learn to be moved in the right direction. And so, uh, you know, Christians should avoid impulsiveness and stubbornness. These are two extremes uh, that we are to avoid. And so this is the Lord speaking to David. David's gone through all of this and the Lord is now uh, saying to him, you know, avoid these things. God is directing our steps, and as a process of that, he's saying, listen, as you walk with me, avoid impulsiveness and avoid stubbornness. These are important things. And so, you know, especially when you consider these statements in the light of um, uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and in the light of Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, impulsive, David impulsively got himself into sin and then stubbornly covered it up for over a year. So this is, this is very relevant uh, to what the Lord is saying to David. Um, and so Christians should avoid both of these kinds of behaviour. We should walk with the Lord uh, a step at a time in loving obedience. Now, um, some Christians uh, have to have, you know, they've got to have the bit and the bridle uh, before God can control them. And over time, God teaches them uh, tenderness of heart to walk with him. Um, that is what God desires for us, that we would have a tenderness of heart uh, in walking with him. Dumb animals have no understanding, but God's people learn to uh, understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, and you can check out Ephesians 5, uh, 15 to 17, therefore be careful how you walk. Uh, verses, verse 15 says, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we often uh, as Christians have sinned, 
and being restored. So from that point of restoration, that's not a time to rest on our laurels. Now is the time, you know, in that point of restoration, that's the time that we would begin to open our hearts up to God and learn to walk carefully and circumspect with him and understand what the will of the Lord is for our lives. Um, you know, Satan will try to undermine our peace and our confidence in the Lord. Um, we, it's very easy for us to begin to worry about the past and the, the consequences of our foolishness. But who will separate us from the love of God? We, we read that just before in Romans chapter 8. Go back there and check that out because there are definitely bitter fruits from disobedience. But verses 10 and 11 show that God protects and upholds those who belong to him. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. The wicked have many sorrows. That's what the Lord says here. And sorrows also come to the lives of disobedient saints. You know, the, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. Saints, both disobedient and obedient, will experience trial and tribulation in this world, this side of eternity. Um, so this is not, as I said earlier, a word of faith uh, message. But when we're walking in obedience and in relationship with God, those trials and tribulations we are able to count as blessings in our lives because we see the will and the purpose of God in it. But the cleanse, and so it is that the, the, the Christian who has been cleansed from his sin, he sees the hand of God in those trials and in those difficulties, and he may even actually rejoice in them that through those trials and difficulties, God has turned his heart away from his own stubbornness and back to that tenderness of confession and, and relationship with God and restoration. So, um, you know, confession is, is a powerful thing. Now, remember, as we come to a close, that confession results in a past that is forgiven, a present that is joyful, and a future that is built on a secure hope in Christ Jesus. And that's a marvelous thing. So let's let's just consider for a moment. We we mentioned at the start that um, the heading, if you have a study Bible of the the psalm, is that it is a masculine psalm, a masculine. I think it is. I think it is. And the meaning of this is that it's a didactic psalm in its purpose, meaning that it has a teaching purpose. How, and it opens with the words, how blessed is he or how spiritually prosperous is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How spiritually prosperous is the man to whom the Lord does not multiply iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit? So with that, given that this is a teaching psalm and it has 
three deliberate pauses in it where we are to reflect at certain points within the psalm, I would ask you, what, what sins are unconfessed between you and God? What is there that is unconfessed? What is there that you must make right with the Lord? This is a sincere and important question for us all to answer. What, what must I come before the Lord with as I seek that joyous fellowship with him as my father who would direct me with the tenderness of his eye rather than with the severity of a rod? And, and you know, I'm thankful that I have experienced the rod of God's correction in my life. but. Uh, you know, I much prefer being in fellowship with him and, and taking the direction of his eye. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. A past forgiven, a present joyful, and a future secure. What a wonderful psalm this really is. It's, it's such a tremendous blessing to us and a real encouragement because, you know, David was. Um, he was he was someone who who so much was just like us, and um, uh, you know he struggled with things. Uh, he he was a man subject to his own passions, um, impulsiveness and stubbornness, uh, all these kinds of things, and that's what God deals with in this um, this psalm and in in the closing verses when God speaks to him. So we can find in this psalm a resemblance to ourselves. Now, Father, we thank you for today. We praise you, Lord God, that your word is not the sterilized uh, record of insincerity, but instead, Lord, it is the inspired recording of an engagement between you and humans. And that engagement included many sins, many sins even of those whom you used mightily. And so we thank you, Father, that even David, who was in Scripture called your friend, failed at many points. And Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are a record of his response to one such failure. So we praise you, Lord, this morning. Help us to learn from this. Help us to go over these Psalms and really meditate over them to see how you would bless us. Help us, Lord, to be tender-hearted before you and recognise our sin and confess it to you without, wait, with, without delay. In the mighty name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.